Only Three Lads is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family, home to some of the best music podcasts on the planet. Visit PantheonPodcast.com to discover more. And if you like what we do on O3L, we kindly ask you to please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on right now. It really helps us more than you know. Vacation. All we ever wanted. Vacation. Had to get away. This is Brett Vargo from O3L. Uncle Greg and I both did some summer traveling this week, so episode 70, the top five Beatlesque songs, will be out on Tuesday, July 27th. But because we don't want to leave you empty-handed, we've got a special episode for you. As we've mentioned before, one of the greatest joys of doing O3L is when we can bring you stories from the people who created and lived the music that we love to talk about on the show. This week, we've culled some of our favorite stories and moments from our past guests. We're going to start with episode 63 guest, Linda Hopper, the utterly charming lead singer of OOK in the 80s and Magna Pop in the 90s. We were discussing with Linda some of the amazing producers that she's worked with during her career, including Michael Stipe, Mitch Easter, and Bob Mould. Here she recounts working with Bob and the infamous Willy Weed. We're already earning the explicit rating on this one, kids. You've worked with some legendary producers in your the time. The Mummy Man. The Mummy Man, yes. is that what? Yeah. Was there one in particular that you felt just like nailed your vision? I'm going to say that Bob was the person that his vision of us was one that I just loved. The record we made with him is called um, Mouthfeel. No. Hot Boxing. Hot Boxing. Thank You're you. You're welcome. And edit, edit, edit. Close. Edit. That was really edit. close. Edit. That was just a few that letters was off. KZX, yeah. But, like, okay, let me just tell you this little story. We worked with Michael Stipe. So did two other bands from Athens. Uh, Daisy was one of them. Oh, the Opal Fox Quartet was one. Magna Pop was one. And the last one was the Chickasaw Mud Puppies. I know. Ah, and so then know, he yeah. had like a remember the 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 big college like New York ninety one um, college nights or, or like new music seminar. It was the beginning of that kind mm-hmm. of. It was like the first year of that. And Michael had a showcase where the four of us played. After we played, these two Dutch journalists came up to Magda Pop and they were like, "We'd like to get your." cd or or your your cassette tape we want to take it with us we loved you and i was like oh sure sure okay and i they went up to ruthie and ruthie gave it to them and then a week later we got a phone call and they were saying um yeah we we want you to come to holland and play we have this big festival uh in, in rotterdam and ivan and ween and uh we think we're making we're getting you in the bill and blah 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 and i was like Wow. Okay. And I mean, and that's, that was sort of the beginning of Magnapop because we even actually still go over to Europe. So from that showcase with Michael, CMJ, was that the new, the something like yeah, that? CMJ. Yeah. We, yeah. uh, we got exposed to, uh, 
to going to Europe. And that's where at this showcase, the only other band that we really knew, Bob was there as a solo artist. And so we hung out with him and, and, uh, and what was interesting is, is that our dressing room had a partition that wasn't wall to, it wasn't floor to ceiling. It was just a partition and Nirvana was on the other side. And it was right when, um, Nevermind came out and, but it hadn't really come out yet. And, um, they were like going fucking berserk next door. They were, you know, throwing food and, you know, like, blah, it was just, and we were, it was really funny because the first reaction was like, oh, and I was like, and who's that woman? You don't have to put that in the, um, cause you know <laughs> oh, who yeah, I we'll mean. I was like, who is that woman? Cause she's really bugging me. But, um, they, uh, yeah. So anyway, that's kind of where we bonded with Bob. And then we, uh, we, to get to, to our first record, uh, we went with Tim nicely. So we did an EP with Tim. Nobody at our label really, really liked his production. And for example, it was, it did, it was just one color. It was the Fugazi producer. I get what they were saying kind of, but we, so we were sort of in that stupid, like, ugh, why can't we just do what we want to do? And then um, yeah. Bob's partner at the time, Kevin called me like really and truly right in the middle of all of this. And he said, Bob wants you to ask him to produce you. And I was like, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> he seems like he would be an intense guy to work with. Who should? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Super duper intense. When you know him, he's so sweet. But you would never use that word if you didn't really know him because he is very intense. And he's told me stories about himself where I go like, wow, okay, I get it. I get it. Um, and you know, the, the, all the Husker touring stories and stuff, it's really amazing and fun. But yeah, it was, it was something that uh, when he said he wanted to produce us, we all just jumped at the opportunity. And then and then the best part was, was that we did it at Willie Nelson's studio in Austin because he was living Ooh. in Austin at the time, Bob and Kevin were. And uh, that was a trip in itself. So what you're saying was marijuana was around. Holy cow. I'll tell you this. <laughs> a little bit? His No, no. His um, The guy that ran the studio was Freddie, like the nephew of Willie. And he said, he was like, girl, I got to tell you something. You remind me of Bronnie Bramlett. I mean, you are. And he said, and Willie told me to give you this. And it was a freaking like gallon sized Ziploc of Willie weed. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you still going through it? You still, <laughs> still working on it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was, it was, it was amazing. You know, it was great about it. They called it the cut and putt. Because it was an old, um, it was an old uh, golf course clubhouse, and the way it was, it was like the window in the this recording room. It was like I would sing, and then I'd have to go down and go. How was that? Because because country musicians record sitting. Oh yeah. So the mm. windows were all low. It was really it was good. It was good times. Yeah. And and actually. <laughs> On Willie's property, he owned this ghost town Whoa. where they actually were, they did that uh, Lonesome Dove movie. Yeah. And so he has this like, <laughs> has this, like old Western town. And we, that's where we recorded our uh, Texas video. It was pretty funny. His gangster guy friends would all be like, yeah, Willie likes to get real 
fucked up and ride around in the town and pretend like, you know, it's like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> you know, they all drove, drove like golf carts with lawnmower engines on them and stuff. It was fantastic. <laughs> well, congratulations on remembering any of that. Yeah. I can only imagine hanging out. Yeah, so really. good job, Linda. I yeah. know, I know. Yeah. But, the, but the, yeah. whole, the whole thing is like, ah, oh, girl, you win the prize. You're getting the willy weed. It was like, <laughs> Pardon the pun. High on. Mm-hmm. There you go. Being a rock star isn't all willy-weed, though. Episode 67 guest Andy Strickland is the great guitarist behind the legendary creation records band The Loft and the Stephen Street-produced band The Caretaker Race. Here, Andy recounts the crazy breakup of The Loft at the biggest gig of their careers. Up the Hill and Down the Slope was a number one hit on the indie charts in May of 1985. As you mentioned, you embarked on a tour with the color field. So for a band at the peak of your potential, not that I want to open up old wounds, no, but that's okay. what happened on stage on the 24th of June, 1985? Well, what happened the two days before was I got a phone call from Bill, the bass player, saying, I've just spoken to Pete. He's splitting up the band, keeping the name. Um, we don't need to do the gig at the Hammersmith Palais if we don't want to. And my response, keeping it clean. I'm not sure whether I'm, I can swear on here, so I'm not going to. Sure. Oh, okay. Go for it. So my my reply was basically, fuck that. We're, we're doing the Palais because it was the biggest gig we were ever going to do, you know. And the Hammersmith Palais was a very yeah. famous London venue. So we did the gig and it was all very... Uh, my plan was to punch Pete unconscious in the dressing room, basically. <laughs> but um, when I thought the moment had come, he was standing in front of my guitars. And I thought, if I hit him now... It'll probably be my guitar that he lands on and snaps, so I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll wait. So we did the gig, and um, somebody said they'd never seen people on a stage standing so far apart. So we were we were spread out <laughs> right wow. across the across the stage of the Hammersmith Palais, and um, I thought, well, I'm not going. I'm not going to let this go quietly. So at one point, I said, you know, I announced this is the last gig we're ever going to do, and there was booing, and somebody threw a pint of lager at Pete, I think, and. It all got a bit unpleasant, and um, we start. I've got this gig on tape, by the way. It is brilliant. Wow! And we started to play up the hill and down the slope, and in the middle of it, Pete sort of stopped singing. And he just started talking, and basically saying, "I've had enough. Uh, these guys don't really. They haven't got a clue." At the back of the palais in those days, there was a flight of steps that went up, a bit like the Sid Vicious video for My Way. Right. And while while we were still playing, Pete just disappeared. He just went. He threw his guitar off, and he just walked up the stairs and disappeared off stage and the three of us just carried on thrashing away the end of up the hill wow. and down the slope and uh, people went crazy they uh, the people who didn't really understand what was going on thought it was amazing <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's all a part of the act yeah and um after that we didn't speak to each other for 25 years so it was quite a strange oh way to stop yeah <laughs> I, I i was actually going to ask you about that because i imagine it could go one of two ways knowing that it's the last gig the band is ever going to play right it could either be like you know, this rare fire and intensity, like this is the way we want to go out, or it could be total chaos. It sounds like it was maybe a little of each. Yeah, a little bit of both. We like to, you know, spread ourselves across across all, all tastes catered for. <laughs> I wish I had a time machine just to go back and watch that because I love awkward moments. And that must yeah. have just been an awkward night. And then you just wanted to beat the hell out of yeah. your bandmates. Oh, God, that would have, I'm, I'm, I'm excited hearing that. 
<laughs> well, well, Dave, our magnificent drummer, he took his drums home on the tube on the underground. So, because you know, we um, they just disappeared. So we were even then we were sort of outside in a van. The rest of us thinking, well, we've got to get the gear home. You know, clearly we, yeah. we all hate each other, but let, let's at least get the equipment. But no, there's no sign of them. He, he took his drums, packed them all up, and just carried them home on the train. We love hearing about the inspirations that sparked musicians. For me, as a musician, the go-betweens are one of my biggest influences, so you can imagine what a thrill it was to have go-betweens bassist Robert Vickers on episode 15. Here, Robert talks about one of his earliest influences, a band of whom we share a mutual love. You have always been, to me, one of the coolest-looking musicians of all time. As a young musician in the in the 90s, I really wanted to model my rock and roll look after my heroes, the Beatles, ultimately. The Small Faces, Michael Clark from The Birds, Paul Weller, Brian Jones, Head Era, Peter Tork, and you from the Liberty Bell cover. But I never quite had the hair to pull it off. <laughs> well, that's 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 great to hear. I, I Obviously, I thought about this myself a lot, too, and a lot of those people were also my idols from uh, from an earlier period uh, the first haircut i ever had done at a at a salon i went in and uh, i didn't know what to tell them but there was a jukebox in the salon and it had a monkey's ep uh, or single on the on, on the set of covers that it had running along the front uh, and when they asked me how i wanted my haircut i put it to peter talk oh wow <laughs> yeah, P Peter just had such a cool look. He did. He was a great musician as well. I was a, a huge Monkees fan. Well, good. We have that in common. Yeah. Head is my favorite. I love when, uh, you know, the Paisley shirts and the beads came out and they got a little uh, more psychedelic. Yes, I, I like the whole thing. Uh, you know, I grew up watching the TV show, of course. And right. that's where I knew most of it from. The songs were just so great. Just a collection of unbelievable songs. Absolutely. Without a doubt, one of the most enjoyable times we've had on O3L was hanging out with the seminal Athens band Love Tractor for an afternoon. Seriously, we spent four hours chatting about music, life, and art, and some of the stories are just too good to be true, but they totally are. If you haven't listened to the three-part episode 55, the main episode, and two bonus episodes, go back and do that because you're in for a real treat. And you'll never hear the Seeds classic, Pushing too hard the same way after this story. Yeah. Well, we played with the Bangles like up in like Blacksburg, Virginia one night. Then we jammed with them on the encore with push, Pushing Too Hard. They're wonderful people, uh, the Bangles. Vicki Peterson can play the heck out of a guitar. And Sue Hoffs is a great singer. We came back from a long tour across the country. We tended, if everybody was uh, tired, Sometimes we would be a little bratty. And there was a band that was opening for us at Reed College uh, from Austin, and they were doing a cover of Pushing Too Hard. And um, Mike was in a bad mood, and he started going, man, I can't believe they're doing this song. I hate this song, or something like that. <laughs> and and um, so then as we then we worked our way down to California and across, and the whole time it was like, man, Frank Riley's tours are pushing too hard. You know, we... We kept joking about that song, uh, that they had done that. Then we get back to Athens, and, and we just found out we've got four shows with the Psychedelic Furs. And on that tour, we were going to play with um, 
the Bengals in Blacksburg, Virginia. And at first we were crabby about it because we were so tired, but it ended up being really fun, a really great leg of the tour. The Bengals were absolutely wonderful. Uh, and we They were just so gracious to us. And, um, you know, back then you'd always get on stage and jam with each other, like with the True Believers and Alejandro. We'd always end up – and the Bengals said, you all want to get up on a song? Um, and uh, and we were like, yeah, what what song should we do? And I made a couple of jokes about I mean, yeah. do Sylvester's uh, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. <laughs> and I got a little laugh, you know, from Debbie Peterson on that. And uh, Vicky goes, what about pushing too hard? It's only two chords. <laughs> <laughs> and the next thing you know, we're up, me, Mark, and Mike are all out there with guitars. You're pushing too hard. Pushing too- <laughs> And I look over at Mike, and Mike's leaning into it, getting into it like it's his favorite song in the world. And then Vicky takes a solo that's rip-roaring, just badass. And Excuse me, I didn't mean to say that. That's okay. The, We're okay. Bad you, you, can to the say bone. you can say it on and, the show. Um, and, you know, she's just great stage presence. And then she looks over to me and signals for me to take a lead. <laughs> and then I said, my lead sounded like this. Doink, 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 doink. You're pushing too hard. Doink, 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 doink. While she was like, you know, tearing it up. Beautiful lady. Then the dude takes this like, it's like uh, Louie Louie. <laughs> but that was a funny story. You're pushing too hard. I love pushing too hard, but I, I will never too. listen to that song the same way again. <laughs> well, Mike liked it too, but he was in, um, can you say B-I-T-C-H on the radio? Say whatever you in, want. Yes. He was in bitch mode that night and he's. I was like, man, I can't believe they're doing this song. And you know, everybody can be a brat. We we all would be brats together. And I joined in with them. Man, I can't believe they're doing it either. And then a few weeks later, we're in Blacksburg pushing too hard. Episode fifty. Yes, Vanessa Briscoe Hay was the lead singer of Pylon, the legendary post punk band who has influenced countless bands from REM to Slater Kenny. Vanessa is such a lovely and gracious person, and gave us a lot of insight into the Athens scene. Now, the great thing about the Athens scene is how tight and close-knit it was. The bands were comprised of friends who went to school together, borrowed instruments from one another, and swapped members. One of those bands was the B-52s, or as all of our new Athens friends refer to them, simply the Bs. In this clip, Vanessa talks about getting together at the Love Shack. I was a huge fan of the B-52s right from the beginning. I don't sing like Kate or Cindy. I wish I could, but I don't. But Vanessa, did you ever go to the Love Shack? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, Of course. I went out to her house with my first husband, and he actually photographed the bees out there. Um, She had a um, beautiful, it was more of a cabin than a shack, um, and some goats and really nice garden and lived out, you know, I think it was Jackson County, you know, and that side of Clark County, just south over the Clark, Clark County line. So, uh, first time I ever saw Kate, she was riding down um, Broad Street in the back of a truck, and she had an evening gown standing up back there with this long scarf blowing behind her like Isadora Duncan. And she had a bag full of glitter that she was scattering to the wind. Wow. And I was like, who is that? (laughs) Speaking of legends, another band who looms very large in our world is Gang of Four. 
This Leeds, England band continues to influence bands to this day with its brittle, funky, danceable, terse, politically aware brand of punk rock. A large part of the band's appeal is their drummer, Hugo Burnham, who we had the pleasure of spending time with for episode 66. Hugo told us about the highs and lows of his music career. Tell me your high point in Gang of Four, and then what was the low point? Oi, Gavalt. Um... I will say, okay, I'll pick two. When we played in the summer of 1979, when we opened for the Buzzcocks at Temple Beautiful in San Francisco, on the hottest night of the year, we destroyed everybody who was in the room. The Buzzcocks were great that night, but not as good as we were. (laughs) We just destroyed. It was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. It's like, oh, my God. And then another high point was in 2005 when we played at the Shepherd's Bush Empire in London. So many old friends. (laughs) The place was way oversold, packed out. Robert Fripp talks about those moments when you are playing and you just get into that second body thing where you're almost floating above yourself and anything you do is going to work. There's no sort of tension or fears. It's like, I can do anything. And you can, it's like you're watching yourself play it. That had that. But, the you know, when we were taking our third encore bow or something towards the end, you know, people were just raging. And we've just, you know, thank you very much. Oh, this is my band. This is my, you know, fucking around. But then I saw my daughter, who was five at the time, at the side of the stage with her mum. And I just held up my arms like this, and she ran across the stage and oh. leapt into my arms. So I'm standing there with her in my arms looking at the audience. And they went even noisier and madder. Wow. So, I mean, it was purely selfish, but that was an incredible high. Low moments. I think when John uh, and Andrew asked me to leave in April or May of 1983, we just got back from a European tour. I'd been managing the band for a year, we, or, or about a year and a half, and then we ended up with a new manager who I didn't want, who basically eventually destroyed them. I was right. <laughs> um, it always happens that way. He, he, I mean, he was a fun, attractive guy. He played us brilliantly. You know, he had this great office on Hollywood Boulevard, fabulous old, rather large craftsman house, full of people. Work. He managed Frank Zappa. There were like 15, 20 people there working away. And then we went up to his house in the Hollywood Hills, and there was very little furniture. Or I just moved in, and, you know, he had plenty of good coke and all this sort of thing. So I'm like, oh, yeah, this is all right. And I let, let, later learned that only two people worked for him. The rest he'd hired from a casting agency <laughs> to make himself look busy. And I thought, yeah, everyone is rather good looking, right? And his house had been like mortgaged three or four times and he'd sold all his furniture. Wow. Wow. So anyway, it was just, but then I was out. Um, and it was sort of a low moment. It was, and I couldn't, I, I was so, I couldn't believe it had happened, but it had. You may know Sean Dowdell as the tattooed millionaire, the highly successful author and entrepreneur behind Club Tattoo, a venture that he started with the late Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park. Sean was also Chester's best friend, a brother figure, and the drummer in the pre-Lincoln Park band Grey Days. Shortly before Chester's tragic death, they had regrouped to revisit their old recordings, a project which Sean continued to orchestrate to its fruition in 2020 with the album Amends. Amends was a huge smash, hitting number one on the rock charts and garnering worldwide acclaim. But did you know 
that there is also an Uncle Greg connection as well. Sean, much like the legendary DJ Murray the K, was considered the fifth Beatle, do you consider Uncle Greg the fifth grade A's? <laughs> no, he no, he's not the fifth grade A's, but he, he's very special, and he has a very historically significant place in the grade A's story because Greg was not only um, one of the most – you know, one of the biggest supporters locally with, with uh, the edge and he helped get a couple of our songs on the radio, but Greg was the very first DJ to play great A's. And of course the uh, through great A's first DJ to play Chester anywhere in the world. Wow. That's wow. A pretty special thing. Um, considering, you know, Chester's sold over a hundred million records and, yeah, and uh, you know, just about everybody in the world has heard, heard Chester. Greg was the very first person to play him. And that, that is a really cool thing. You know, I don't think Greg um, is considered the fifth member of Great A's because he doesn't play an instrument. And that that would kind of, I guess that would be a prerequisite for me to think of him in that way. But he is, he's like, I don't know, he was just always around and always. I'm kind of like a roadie. Nah, I was the roadie. Bigger than that. Better a roadie than a group. I cleaned great. up the barf. Yeah, something like that. Or even though he wasn't a manager, I would say he he, he carried that. He carried that respect from the band members, like a manager, like your band manager would. Like he was always around, and we respected him and wanted him around. He wasn't a hang around, he wasn't a groupie. It wasn't that. It was like we wanted to be around him and hang out with him. He gave us good advice and helped us do do things. So I would put it more like in, as a as a as a as a more of a manager than a, than a band member. Okay. Well, I hope your groupies were better looking. <laughs> And they were yeah. <laughs> ding, ding. They were oh. acclaimed author, public speaker, humanitarian. What is it that you have not done, Sean? I'm getting into hand modeling soon. <laughs> I was high on the list, gentlemen. All right. A drummer's <laughs> hands are known to be stunning. <laughs> I'm going to go George Costanza style. I'm going to wear oven mitts everywhere I go. So my hand. We conclude this episode with a mind-blowing and surreal story from Richard Blade. Richard Blade, of course, is a man who needs no introduction to O3L listeners, but just in case, he broke a whole lot of the classic alternative artists that we love as a taste-making DJ on K-Rock and on his music video TV shows in the 80s. He had his own CD series, Richard Blade's Flashback Favorites, is a best-selling author, has appeared in major Hollywood movies, he has his own show on Sirius XM's First Wave channel and recently was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He's done everything and knows just about everyone and was our season two opening guest in episode 43. Check this one out. You've met everybody. You've done everything. We've already talked about that. And first of all, Bands Reunited. Love that show. Still watch uh, episodes on YouTube with it. I just really enjoy that show. Um, mm. but what are, what's probably the most, un, you know, surreal moment you've had in your career? Oh, um, I'm sure there's a bunch think. of them. Well, before I was Richard Blake, when I was Dick Shepard and I was DJing mobiles, uh, mobile parties, you know, uh, I, w I started doing a bunch of celebrity ones because of the English accent I kind of lucked into. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did one for Barbara Streisand and that opened all the doors. Suddenly all the celebrities wanted whoever uh, DJed uh, Barbara Streisand's party. So I did one for Zsa Zsa Gabor. And it was 
one of the most memorable nights of my life because she is one of the stilt houses on the canyons, you know, with, with several levels, but it's built out over the over the canyon on stilts. And I was in the lower level in the game room. They pushed the pool table over to the side and I put my speakers and DJ gear in there and all that. And I was just down there by myself for two hours while people were eating dinner. And this uh, kid came down and said, can I look through your music? And I said, sure. And so Michael Jackson went through all my singles and pulled up a few. And then uh, he asked if I could play a track from uh, Destiny, which was a just released album. And I said, sure. And I couldn't play it loud because they were people upstairs so i said to michael i can't play your music quiet michael but he got out on the floor and he was practicing his dance moves to it and uh, i was just sitting there going I, you know because i grew up with the jackson five before they became the jacksons and here i am watching michael jackson just dancing in front of me and working out <laughs> wow. the moves for his upcoming tour and then he looks at me and he says do you um have a cassette player and i said yeah i got a panasonic down here and he goes i'll be right back and he ran out to his limo and he came back with a cassette and he said, can you put this in? And I said, sure. And he goes, it's, it's, it, it's a rough mix. Doesn't sound that good. And I said, I don't mind. No, no, I'm, you know, whatever you want to hear, I'm just kicking, kicking back here. And I put it on and I, I write in the book about this. I don't know if it was rock with you or uh, just, uh, just uh, don't stop till you get enough. I can't remember which, but I put it on and I think it was rock with you because of the uh, horns that he wanted. And I, I played it and, and he was out there just listening. And then uh, he said, stop, stop, stop. And so I hit the pause and he goes, I don't like it. And I said, it sounds good. It, I, it sounds great. He said, we know we were recording it today. It said the horns need to be louder. They're mixed too low. And he said, if, when I point to you, can you turn the volume up? And I said, well, I can't go too loud because charge us up upstairs. And he goes, just turn the volume up when I point. And I said, okay. So three times I rewound it and played it. And he pointed to me and I turned the volume up. And he goes, that's the way it's going to be. I'm going to tell Quincy tomorrow. <laughs> and, and that was just a surreal moment. You know, when I look back at it, I was, I, I mean, I was thrilled at the time to be spending time with Michael Jackson. But in retrospect, it's like, I wish I could go back and tell Dick Shepard to be even more enthusiastic <laughs> about it because it, it was quite something. And then the party started and coming down the stairs is my all time favorite actor who I just wanted to be when I was a kid. And I, I went up to him and I said, excuse me, can I just say hello to you? And he goes, of course you can. Why, why do you want oh, to no. say hello to me? <laughs> and I said, well, I, I, I used to go to school with a, a wet armpit because of you. Why on <laughs> earth would you have a wet armpit? Because of me. And I said, because I had the 007 shoulder holster and it was a water pistol that leaked. And I said, but I used to wear it every day. And he goes, you know, I had one of those. He said, but I never actually put water in it. He said, I used to collect all of the uh, stuff back in the early days. But thank you for saying that. And it was like, wow. In one night, I met Michael Jackson and Sean Connery. And that was, it was just such a moment for me. I, I that, I'm that is a surreal talk one. about wow. Starstruck. Yeah. I mean, two of the greatest, you know, in their own fields ever. Are, are, are you thanked on off the wall for you turning up? Actually, uh, after that party, I started doing private parties for Michael Jackson. He had me go into his house on Havenhurst oh, wow. in Encino and I did a whole bunch of parties and then, uh, you know, I did the um, launch party for uh, Destiny and the Jackson's Victory Tour at uh, the uh, bank in Beverly Hills. It was on Entertainment Tonight and all that. I was in the in the um, vault 
with the Jackson five or the Jacksons, you know, and then Epic mm -hmm. made the S look like a five and uh, had all the lasers and, and fog going. But though back in the ni 1979, it was the, the lasers weren't like today. It was one <laughs> little red laser going up and down through the fog. And uh, but I, I've stayed friends with Michael. And then when Thriller came out, I've got it on my wall behind me right now. I'm pointing at it. I, <clears throat> I have uh, assigned uh, the um, album from Michael and it, a picture of it's in the book. It says to Richard, thanks for all you did, Michael Jackson. And uh, so it was, it was an absolute thrill. He was such a nice, nice guy, but unfortunately, you know, torn apart by the people around him that only yeah. said yes to him, you know, and, and didn't ever say, Michael, you shouldn't do that. But there you go. There you go. Wow. That is, that is yeah. just real surreal. I mean, it's just crazy. Oh, it is. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Hard to believe sometimes. So there you have it. We hope you enjoyed our trip down memory lane. We have more guests in the future. Who knows? Maybe even next episode. So stay tuned. As always, thanks for listening. Until then, to quote Soft Cell, we'll say hello and wave goodbye. The theme music is Frequency, written and performed by yours truly, Brett Vargo. Any other music in this episode is presented solely for purposes of review, examination, and news reporting. If you like what you hear, go to your record store and pick up the LP, CD, cassette, or 8-track, or stream it if you're one of those newfangled fancy pants. If we're lucky enough to still have these artists with us, go out and see some live music. For the latest updates, join the O3L community at facebook.com slash only3lads. We want to hear from you. And while you're at it, click on the Shop Now link for the coolest threads. Until next time, thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.